Hello, I'm Darcy Darnas and this is Confessions from the Dark Side, 13 Nights of Slaughter. And welcome to another story time from the Victorian times. An alternative Yule festive storytelling that would have been read around the fireplace as a family during Victorian Britain. What story do we have? A Strange Christmas Game by Charlotte Riddle, which was published in 1868. I'm going to give you a disclaimer. I am not entirely sure what sort of language or vernacular is used in this story, so if there is any words that I will not say, you will know because I will give you a warning. Let's get to it. A Strange Christmas Game. When, through the death of a distant relative, I, John Lester, succeeded to the Martin Gaelic estate, there could not have been found in the length of the breadth of England a happier pair than myself and my sister Clerk. We were not such utter hypocrites as to affect sorrow for the loss of our kinsman, Paul Lester, a man whom we had never seen, of whom we had heard but little. And that little unfavourable, at those hands we had never received a single benefit who was, in short, as a great stranger to us as then the Prime Minister, the Emperor of Russia or any other human beings being utterly removed from our extremely humble sphere of life. His loss was very certainly our gain. His death represented to us not a, de- a dreary parting from one loved one to another and highly honoured, but the, the accession of lands, houses, consideration, wealth to myself, John Lester, Esquire, Martingale, Bedfordshire, Wallam, John Lester, artisan second floor lodger at 32 Great Smith Street, Bloomsbury. Not that Martingale was much of an estate as, in a, as country properties go. The Lesters who had succeeded to that domain from time to time during the course of a few hundred years could, by no stretch of courtesy, have been called prudent men. In regard of their posterity, they were indeed scarcely honest, for they parted with manors and farms, with common rights and adversions, in a manner at once so baronial and so unbusinesslike that Martin Gale, at the length in the hands of Jeremy Lester, the last resident owner, melted to a mere little dot in the map of Bedfordshire. Concerning this, Jeremy Lester, there was a mystery. No man could say what had become of him. He was in the oak parlour at Martingale on one Christmas Eve and before the next morning he had disappeared to reappear in the flesh no more. Overnight, one Mr Barley, a great friend and boon companion of Jeremy's, had sat playing cards with him until after 12 o'clock chimes. Then he took leave of his host and rode home under the moonlight. After that, no person, as far as could be ascertained, ever saw Jeremy Lester alive. His ways of life had not been either the most regular or the most respectful, and it was not until a new year had come without any tidings of his whereabouts reaching the house that his servants became seriously alarmed concerning his absence, and inquiries were set on foot concerning him, inquiries which grew more urgent as the weeks and months passed, by without the slightest clue being obtained as to where his whereabouts to his whereabouts. Rewards were offered, advertisements inserted, but still Jeremy had made no sign, and so in no, cor- in no course of time, heir at law, Paul Lester, took possession of the house and went down to spend the summer months at Martingale. With his rich wife and their four children by a- her first husband, Paul Lester was a barrister, an overworked barrister who everyone supposed would be glad enough to leave the bar and settle at Martingale, where his wife's money and the fortune he had accumulated could not have been failed to him to give him a good standing even among the neighbouring country families, but perhaps it was with such intention that he went down into Bedfordshire. If this were so, however, he speedily changed his mind for the, when the January snows he returned to London. Let off the land surrounding the house, shut up the hall, put in a caretaker and never troubled himself further about his ancestral seat. Time went on and people began to see the house was haunted, that Paul Lester had seen something and so forth, all the witch stories 
were duly repeated for our benefit when 41 years after the disappearance of Jeremy Lester, Claire and I went to inspect our inheritance. I say our because Claire had stuck bravely to me in poverty. Grinding poverty and prosperity was not going to be part, was going to part us now. What was mine was hers and she knew this. God bless her without my needing to tell her so. My, the transition from rigid economy to comparative wealth was in our case the more delightful so also because we had not in the least degree anticipated it. We never expected Paul Lester's shoes to come to us and accordingly it was not upon our consciences that we had ever in our dreariest of moods wished him dead. Had he made a will, no doubt, we never should have gone to Martingale and I, consequently never written this story, but luckily for us he died intestate and the Bedfordshire property came to me. As for the fortune, he had spent it in travelling and in giving great entertainments at his grand house in the Portman Square. Concerning his effects, Mrs Lester and I came to a very amicable agreement and she did me the honour of inviting me up to call upon her occasionally and I, as I heard, spoke of me as a very worthy and presentable young man for my station which of course coming from so so good an authority was gratified. Moreover she asked me if I intended resigning at Martingale and on my replying in the affirmative hoped I should like it. It struck me at the time that there was a certain significance in her tone and when I went to Martingale and heard the absurd stories which were afloat concerning the house being haunted I felt confident that if Mrs Lester had hoped much she had feared more. People said Mr Jeremy walked at Martingale. He had been seen it was averred by poachers, by gamekeepers, by children had come to see the park as a near cut to school by lovers who kept their tryst under the elms and beaches. Oh my. As for the caretaker and his wife, the third in residence since Jeremy Lester's disappearance, the man gravely shook his head when questioned when the while the woman stated that wild horses, even wealth untold, should not draw her into the red bedroom nor the oak parlour after dark. I have heard my mother tell Sir it was her as followed old Mrs Reynolds, the first caretaker, how there were things that out went on in these same these self same rooms as might make any Christians here standing in, such stamping and swearing and knocking about in furniture and then tramp 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 up the great staircase and along the corridor as and so into the red bedroom and then bang and tramp and tramp again. They do say so sir. Mr Paul Lester met him once and from time to time the oak parlour had never been opened. I never was inside it myself. Upon hearing which fact the first thing I did was to proceed to the oak parlour, open the shutters and let the August sun stream in upon the haunted chamber. It was an old-fashioned plainly furnished apartment with a large table in the centre. A smaller in a recess by the fireplace, chairs ranged against the walls and a dusty moth-eating carpet upon the floor. There were dogs on the hearth, broken and rusty. There was a brass fender, tarnished and barred. A picture of some sea fight over the mantelpiece, while another work of art about equal and merit hung between the windows. Altogether, an utterly prosaic and yet not uncheerful apartment from out of which the ghost fitted as soon as daylight was let into it, and which I proposed as soon as I felt my feet to redecorate, refurnish and convert into a pleasant morning room. I was still under 30, but I had learned the prudence in that very good school necessity, and it was not in my intention to spend much money until I had ascertained for certain that what were the actual revenues derivable from the land still belonging to the Martingale estates and the charges upon them. In fact, I wanted to know what I was worth before committing myself to any great extravagances and the place had for so long been neglected that I had experienced some difficulty in arriving at the state of my real income. In the meanwhile, Claire and I found great enjoyment in exploring every nook and corner of our domain. 
In turning over the contents of old chests and cupboards and examining the faces of our ancestors looking down on us from the walls and walking through the neglected gardens full of weeds, overgrown with shrubs and birdweed. The boxwood was 18 feet high and the shoots of the rose trees yards long. I have put the place in order since then. There is no grass on the paths. There are no trailing brambles over the ground and the hedges have been cut and trimmed and the trees pruned and the boxwood clipped. But I often say nowadays that in spite of all the my improvements or rather in consequence of them, Martingale does not look half as so pretty as it did in its pristine state of uncivilised picturesqueness. Although I determined not to commence repairing and decorating the house till better informed concerning the rental of Martingale, still the estate of my finances was so far satisfactory that Claire and I decided to, on going abroad, take our long talk holiday before the fine weather was passed. We could not tell what a year might bring forth. As Claire Sagel remarked, it was wise to take our pleasure while we could and accordingly before the end of August arrived, we were wandering about the continent, loitering at Rouen, visiting the galleries of Paris and talking of extending our one month of enjoyment into three. What decided me on this course was the circumstance of becoming acquainted with a man English family who intended wintering in Rome. We met accidentally but discovering that we were near neighbours in England, in fact, that Mr. Cronson's property lay close beside Martingale. Coincidence? The slight acquaintance soon ripened into intimacy and ere long we travelling in company. From the first, Claire did not much like this arrangement. There was a little girl in England she wanted me to marry and Mr. Cronson had a daughter who certainly was both handsome and attractive. The girl had not despised John Lester's artist while Miss Cronson indisputably set her cap at John Lester or Martingale and would have turned away her pretty face from a poor man's admiring glance. All this I can see plainly enough now, but I was blind then I should have proposed for Maybell. That was her name. Before the winter was over, I had news not suddenly arrived of the illness of Mrs. Cronson Sr. and a moment of the programme was changed. Our pleasant days of foreign travel were at an end. The Cronsons packed up and departed, while Claire and I returned more slowly to England, a little out of humour it was it must be confessed with each other. It was in the middle of November when we arrived at Martingale and found the place anything but romantic or pleasant. The walks were wet and sodden, the trees were leafless. There were no flowers save a few late pink roses blooming in the garden. It had been a wet season and the place looked miserable. Claire would not ask Alice down to keep her company in the winter months as she had not intended and for myself, the Cronsons were still absent in Norfolk where they meant to spend Christmas with old Mrs Cronsons now recovered. Altogether, altogether, Martingdale seemed dreary enough and the ghost stories we had laughed at the sunshine flooded the room became less unreal when we had nothing but blazing fires and wax candles to dispel the gloom. They became more real also when servant after servant left us to seek situations elsewhere, when noises grew frequent in the house, when we ourselves, Claire and I, with our own ears, heard the tramp tramp and the banging and the chattering which had been described to us. My dear reader, you doubtlessly are free from the superstitious fancies. You poo-poo the existence of ghosts and only wish you could find a haunted house in which to spend a night. Which is already brave and praiseworthy, but wait till you are left in a dreary, desolate old country mansion, filled with the most unaccountable sounds, without a servant, with none save an old caretaker and his wife, who, living at the extremest end of the building, heard nothing of the trap-trap-bang-bang going on at all hours of the night. At first, I imagined the noises were produced by some evil disposed person who wished for purposes of their own to keep the house uninhabited by the degrees of Claire and I had come to the conclusion the visitation must be supernatural and Martindale, by consequence, untenable. 
Still being practical people and unlike our predecessors, not having money to live where and how we liked, we decided to watch and see what we could trace any human influence in the matter. If not, it was agreed, we would pull down the right wing of the house and the principal staircase. For nights and nights we were sat up till 2 and 3 o'clock in the morning, clearly engaged in needlework, eye reading, with a revolver lying on the table beside me, but nothing, neither sound nor appearance rewarded our vigil. This confirmed my first ideas that the signs were not supernatural, but to the test of the matter. I determined on Christmas Eve the anniversary of Mr Jeremy Lester's disappearance to keep watch myself in the red bedchamber, even to clear and clear, I never mentioned my intention. About 10, tired out of my previous vigils, we each retired to rest, somewhat obstinately. Perhaps I noisily shut the door of my room and when I opened it half an hour afterwards, no mouse could have pursued its way along the corridor with the greater silence and caution than myself. Quite in the dark, I sat in the red room. For over an hour, I might as well have been in my grave for anything I could see in the apartment, but at the end of that time, the moon rose and the cast strange lights across the floor, and upon the wall of the haunted chamber. Hitherto, I had kept my watch opposite the window. Now I changed my place to a corner near the door, where I was shaded from observation by the heavy hangings of the bed and an antique wardrobe. Still, I sat on. But still no sound broke of the silence. I was weary with many nights watching and, and tired of my solitary vigil. I dropped at last into a slumber from which I awakened by hearing the door softly open. John, said my sister almost in a whisper. John, John, are you here? Yes, Claire, I answered. But what are you doing up at this hour? I'm downstairs, she replied. They are in the old parlour. I did not need any explanation as to whom she meant, but I crept downstairs after her, warned by an uplifted hand of the necessity for silence and caution. By the door, by the open door of the parlour, she paused and we both looked in. There was the room we left in darkness overnight, with a bright wood fire blazing on the hearth, candles in the chimney piece, the small table pulled out from its accustomed corner, and two men seated beside it, playing at cribbage. We could see the face of a younger player, and it was of a man about five and twenty of a man who lived hard and wickedly, who had wasted his substance and his health, who had been while in the flesh, Jeremy Lester. It would be difficult for me to say how I knew this, how in a moment I identified the features of the player who, with those of a man who had been missing for 41 years, 41 years that very night. He was dressed in the costume of a bygone period, his hair was powdered, and round his wrists were these ruffles of lace having come from some great party and had sat down after his return home to play cards with an intimate friend and on his finger there sparkled a ring in front of his shirt where it gleamed of valuable diamonds. There were diamond buckles in his shoes and according to the fashion at this time he wore knee breeches and silk stockings which showed off advantageously the shape of the remarkable good leg and ankle. Oh, a good leg and ankle. He sat opposite the door, but never once lifted his eyes to it. His attention seemed concentrated in the cards. For a time there was utter silence in the room, broken only by the momentous counting of the game, and the doorway we stood, holding our breath, terrified and yet fascinated by the scene which we was being acted before us, like a past memory. The ashes dropped on the hearth softly, and like snow we could hear the rustle of the cards as they dealt out and fell upon the table. We listened to the count, 15-1, 15-2, and so forth, and there was no other word spoken till at length the player whose face we could not see exclaimed, I win, the game is mine. Then his opponent took his up the cards, sorted them over ne negligently in his hand, and then put them close together and flung the whole pack in his guest's face, exclaiming, Cheat! Liar! Take that! 
There was a bustling confusion and flinging over of chairs and fierce gesticulation and such of a noise of passionate voices mingling that we could not hear a sentence which was being uttered. At all at once, however, General Lester strode out of the room in so such a great hurry that he almost touched us where we stood out of the room and tramp tramp up the stairs to the red room, whence he descended in a few minutes with a couple of rapiers under his arm. When he re-entered the room he, he gave, as it seemed to us, the other man his choice of weapons and then he flung opened the window and after ceremoniously giving place for his opponent to pass our out first, he walked forth into the night air, Claire and I following. We went through the garden and down a narrow winding walk to a smooth piece of turf. Sheltered from the north by a plantation of young fir trees, it was a bright moonlight night by the time and we could distinctly see Jeremy Lester measuring off the ground. When you say three, he said it at last to the man whose back was still towards him was he had drawn lots for the ground and a lot of fallen against Mr. Lester. He stood thus with the moonbeams falling upon him and a handsome fellow I would never desire to behold. One began the other, two, and before the kinsman had the slightest suspicion of his design, he was upon him and his rapier through Jeremy Lester's breast. At the sight of that cowardly treachery, Claire screamed aloud in a moment. The combatants had disappeared and the moon was obscured behind a cloud and we were standing in the shadow of the fir plantation, shivering with cold and terror. But we knew at last what had become of the late owner of Martingale. And he had fallen, not in fair fight, but foully murdered by a false friend. When late on Christmas morning I awoke, it was to see a white world, to behold the ground and trees and shrubs all laden and covered with snow. There was snow everywhere, such snow as no person could remember having fallen for 41 years. It was on su just such a Christmas as this that Jeremy disappeared, remarked the old sexton to my sister, who had insisted on dragging me through the snow to church, whereupon Claire fainted away and was carried into the vestry, where I had a full confession of to the vicar of all we had beheld the previous night. At first that worthy individual rather inclined to treat the matter lightly, but when a fortnight after the snow melted away and the fir plantation came to be examined, he convinced there might have been more things in heaven and earth than his limited philosophy had dreamed of. In a little clear space just within the plantation, Jeremy Lester's body was found. We knew it by the ring and the diamond buckles and the sparkling breastpin, and Mr Cronson, who is in the capacity as magistrate, came over to inspect these relics, which visibly perturbed at my narrative. Pray, Mr Lester, did you in your dream sit, see the face of the gentleman, your kinsman opponent? No, I answered, he sat and stood with his back to us the whole time. There is nothing more, of course, to be done in the matter, observed Mr Cronson. Nothing, I replied, and there the affair would doubtless have terminated, but that a few days afterwards, when we were dining at Cronston Park, Claire all of a sudden dropped the glass of water she was carrying to her lip, and exclaiming, look, John, there he is, rose from her seat, and with a face a as white as a tablecloth pointed at the portrait hanging on the wall. I saw him for an instant when he turned his head towards the door as Jeremy Lester left it. She explained, and that is he. Of what followed after his identification, I only I have only the vaguest recollection. Servant rushed hither and thither. Mrs. Cronson dropped off her chair into hysterics. The young ladies gathered round their mamma. Mr. Cronson, trembling like one in an affit, attempted some kind of explanation while Claire kept praying to be taken away, only to be taken away. I took it away not merely from Cronson Park but from the Martindale. Before we left the latter place, however, I had an interview with Mr. Cronson who said the portrait Claire had identified was that of his wife's father, the person who saw Jeremy Lester alive. 
He is an old man now, finished Mr. Conson, a man of over 80 who has confessed everything to me. You won't bring further sorrow and disgrace upon us by making this matter public. I promised him I would keep silence, but the story gradually oozed out and the Cronsons left the country. My sister never returned to Martindale. She married and is living in London. Though I assure her there were no strange noises in my house, she will not visit Bedfordshire, where the little girl she wanted me so long ago to think of seriously as now my wife and the mother of my children. So, that was a strange Christmas game. So that was what a story about a false friend killing his friend for some reason. Who knows why? You never know. He may have actually done something to him and that was his punishment maybe? Punishment that man got is when his, his daughter fell ill and when he came in contact out of sheer fluke basically in Europe and brought the families together which is very very weird to be shot down but he's confessed therefore he didn't even get any sort of he didn't get punishment for what he did to that man and that man wasn't seen for 41 years and no one found him and they found his body only because Lester himself, his spirit who's been in the house obviously entrapped and only comes at certain times it seems to show his ancestors basically who are living in the house what actually happened to him finally was it a kind of closure for the, the man who died yeah, the ancestor who was killed and taken out by who he thought was a friend but again he never got his punishment, he never got his just and the man never got justice he just basically got to move on because we got to see the truth and what actually happened to him. So a lesson in here is don't be a fucking dick. Don't be a dick. Be nice. Don't go killing your mates. Don't befriend people if you're not going to be just be nice to them. Just move on. How are you enjoying? 13 scary ghost stories from a Victorian Christmas time. And the tradition that we are trying to keep alive this year in our first December doing confessions from the dark side and we are enjoying each and every second of it and I hope you are too and as we said the last one which is the 13th night which will be Christmas Eve so I can actually celebrate it with my podcast partner so who is Luna Rising who has been reading his stories too I hope you're enjoying us reading these to you and enjoying them as much as we are so remember to like share comment and let us know which is your favourite let us know where you're actually listening to us as well whether it's Amazon Music, Spotify, YouTube, Podchaser, Pocket Cast wherever, let us know where you're listening to us and how much you're enjoying it and what you're looking forward to the new year and that is me before I ramble on I am Darcy Darkness, this is Confessions from the Dark Side and that was 13 Nights of Slaughter later